What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On February 24, 1986, police in Talladega, Alabama, forced their way inside the home of 24-year-old Sherry Weathers. Sherry was a student and a mother of two. When she had not shown up for classes in over a week, police were sent to do a wellness check. And soon, the reason for her absence became very clear. Sherry and her two young children had been strangled. What's more, their killer had piled them on top of each other in the shape of a cross. The utter callousness of it, of not only killing them, strangling them, but then posing them to be discovered. It's a, an act of a vile human being. Years later, the harrowing scene still haunts the two detectives who worked on the case. When you see something like that, you can't help but, but think about your own child. This could happen to my child, too. And so now you know you got to do everything you possibly do to bring this person to justice. The killer was a 31-year-old artist and seasoned criminal, and his macabre masterpiece was far from complete. Two more bodies were discovered, and the killer had slipped away without a trace. Police began the long and grueling search to find him before he struck again. He's in the wind. We didn't know where he was, but we knew that somebody's gonna die until he was caught. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Daniel Lee Siebert. Daniel Lee Siebert was born on June 17, 1954, in Mattoon, Illinois. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and homicide detective Eugene Jacks explain that Siebert didn't grow up in a loving home. So these were the post-war years in the U.S. The economy was starting to boom. We have the idea of the American dream. But I think when we look behind closed doors at his family life, it was anything but that. There are reports of abuse from his father towards his mother and towards him. Father was an aggressive man. He uh, mistreated both Danny and his mother. He was a man who was violent and abusive and controlling. And this is the role model of masculinity that Siebert grows up with. So I think that there is a real sense of shame that Siebert maintains throughout his life. And having been victimized, I think that Siebert was always trying to, to turn the tables and be the aggressor. In 1968, a month before his 14th birthday, Siebert's parents got divorced. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel says that not long after, the young boy's life spiraled out of control. He became addicted to drugs. He had uh, got into prostitution himself, acting as a male prostitute. 
I think there were several warning signs in Siebert's childhood and adolescence that point towards a, a very troubled individual. He's somebody who could not make relationships work with other people. He didn't relate to his peers particularly well. There was a feeling of rejection from the family environment. And it's this sense of isolation and later the choice to be isolated, which is something that's very concerning for me. There was nothing about him that could be described as ordered. He was like a Catherine wheel going round and round in every single direction, a firework. When he was 18, Siebert joined the military, hoping to gain some sort of stability in his life. Siebert's decision to try and join the Marines is a really, really interesting part of this case because it's what that decision symbolises. The Marines symbolise this alpha male, this toughness, this kind of real American hero type persona. And I think Siebert wanted to try and live up to that. Unfortunately, he couldn't deal with the order the Marines brought him. And quickly, well, within a year, I went absent without leave. After being dishonorably discharged from the Marines, Siebert was directionless. However, he had one hidden talent that he decided to lean on. One thing that Siebert excelled at was as an artist. It was the only thing he was good at. You can tell by looking at some of his drawings, it was just, you know, I think he was expressing his fantasies in his drawings. That's how he got started with that. He was quite a person. I mean, he, he had an engaging personality. Enjoyable to talk with, really. If you didn't know what kind of person he was down deep, you would actually enjoy sitting and talking with him. Life for the budding young artist remained difficult. Between 1972 and 1978, he was principally based in Los Angeles. And there were a series of offences, drug offences, some violence, charges of battery. It was a life lived on the edge, uh, on the fringes of society and on the fringes of the law. By January 1979, 24-year-old Siebert was living in Las Vegas. He was in a relationship with another man. However, they were not exactly a happy couple. The relationship was abusive and came to a shocking end when Siebert fatally stabbed his partner. This homicide was a particularly vicious one because Siebert stabbed his partner 29 times. Now, for me, that means that he has made that decision 29 times to put the knife in again. This was somebody who knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing was wrong and they chose to do it anyway. Despite the ferocity of the slaughter, at the trial, Siebert was charged only with manslaughter, not murder. Siebert insisted that it was a matter of self-defense. How it can be to stab someone that many times is slightly beyond me. But it did seek to throw into doubt whether it was a premeditated murder and therefore added strength to the argument that it was a crime of passion. I think because this was a homosexual relationship, there was a tendency for the court to just want to accept that narrative and put this case to bed because there was still stigma around homosexuality in the US at this time. And I think that was perhaps what drove this offence in the first place, because a lot of violence has its roots in shame. I think Siebert was fundamentally ashamed of who he was. He never accepted who he was. He never felt that society would accept him for, for his true identity. So I think this early offence is so important and the criminal justice system's reaction to it was just not good enough. Siebert was sentenced to 10 years in prison. In December 1981, two years into his sentence, 
Siebert escaped while on work detail. Now we really do have a lethal weapon waiting to go off. While he's on the run, he kidnaps a woman at gunpoint in San Francisco, and she only escapes by jumping out of the moving car on the Golden Gate Bridge. It is a remarkable, remarkable escape because in my own mind, I'm not the slightest doubt that he intended to kill her. Siebert didn't last long on the lam and was captured the following day. He was found in nearby Oakland and returned to prison and an extra year was added to his sentence. Despite the extra sentencing, four years later in 1985, he was out on parole with the condition that he would return to court to face charges for the abduction and assault he'd committed during his brief escape. In December of that year, Siebert was due to appear in court in San Francisco. He never showed up. Instead, he traveled 800 miles away to Tucson, Arizona, where he was picked up while hitchhiking. He told the driver he was heading east. But now, Daniel Siebert is not calling himself Daniel Siebert, he's calling himself Daniel Spence. He's given a lift by a man called Donald Hedrum, who is on his way to Alabama. Before the journey comes to an end, Donald has offered Spence a post as a volunteer at the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind, in which Hendron works. Alabama Institute for Deaf and Blind is a big part of the Tallulah community. It's actually a community of its own, or a family of its own, you might say. And he has, superficially at least, the perfect cover. Artistic young man, happy to volunteer at an institute for those with deafness and blindness. Leaving his troubles in California behind him in January 1986, Siebert settled down in Talladega, Alabama. Under his new identity as Daniel Spence, he worked at the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind and was quickly embraced by the community. After he arrived here, people realized that he was an accomplished artist and he was asked to do a mural at AIDB, which he did. Uh, and that's one of the reasons he stayed here for a while, was doing that mural. Once again, he hid in plain sight. The affable art volunteer, friend of Donald, welcome in the Institute. And then, and it's almost heartbreaking, he meets Sherry Ann Weathers, a 24-year-old deaf mother of two small boys. And they form a relationship. A new circle of friends had welcomed 31-year-old Daniel Siebert into their lives with open arms. They had no idea they had allowed a killer into their close-knit community. And in just under a month, five people would be dead. Badlands is an anthology series that blends history and true crime to tell the transgressive stories of some of the biggest names in Hollywood. This is not the Hollywood history you've heard before. These are uncensored, immersive, edge-of-your-seat storytelling. Host Jake Brennan, the creator and host of the award-winning music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland, explores the most insane stories surrounding the world's most interesting Hollywood icons. Badlands has covered many actors, directors, and more, including the mysterious deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Natalie Wood, Tim Allen's former 
career as a low-level drug dealer, the curse of the movie Poltergeist, how porn star John Holmes got caught up in the infamous Wonderland murders, and more episodes on Winona Ryder, Johnny Depp, River Phoenix, Gianni Versace, Robin Williams, Heath Ledger, Sharon Tate, Robert Downey Jr., and so many more. New episodes of Badlands are released every Wednesday, with bonus episodes released every Friday. Subscribe to Badlands on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. In early 1986, 31-year-old Daniel Siebert was living in Talladega, Alabama. He had been volunteering as an artist at the Alabama School for the Deaf and Blind when he met 24-year-old Sherry Weathers. Sherry was a single mother of two and a deaf student at the school. Shortly after meeting, Daniel and Sherry started dating, and he spent most of his time at her apartment. Then, on February 24th, friends of Sherry contacted local police. She hadn't shown up at school for almost a week, and her friends were increasingly worried. Homicide detective Eugene Jacks was one of the investigators who worked on the case. In February 1986, uh, the police department received a call for a welfare check at Sunrise Apartments in Talladega. Police were dispatched. Officer Tom Byerman was the first on the scene. When he entered Sherry Weathers' apartment, he discovered the bodies of Sherry Weathers and her two boys. He immediately backed out, locked the door, and called for investigation. Dennis Surrett, from the district attorney's office, joined Detective Jacks on the case. We arrived at the apartments, and the police department had already had the scene roped off. And we met the other investigators, went into the apartment, and as you walk into the room, there's a bedroom, and then there's a living room, and there's a kitchen. And right in the center of the living room and kitchen, you see three bodies. It's quite horrible. I haven't forgotten it after all these years. One of the next-door neighbors had heard the two little boys playing in a tub. He got them out of the bed. He strangled the two little boys. He actually woke them up because they were in bed asleep. He wanted them to know that they were being killed. He wanted them to feel that fear. And he stacked their bodies on top of the mother. It looked like it formed a cross. That's my first impression. Sherry Weathers and her two sons, five-year-old Chad and four-year-old Joseph, had been strangled five days earlier on February 19th. It was a haunting sight for even the most seasoned detectives. Nevertheless, they got to work surveying the scene, taking extra care while looking for evidence. You know the minute you walk into that scene, you know this is a death penalty case. And you know things have to be done differently. Everything has to be perfect. Everything has to be exact. Everything has to be documented. I's dotted, T's crossed, because you know where this is headed to. Because you know a murder of two or more is done. It's going to be a death penalty case. And then the emotional part hits you. You know, this is a young mother. This is two young children had their lives ahead of them. What kind of person would do this? Uh, I mean, it's just, emotionally it hits you. That's the second thing. After, after reality is what you got. And emotionally, you're hit, you know, especially if you have children. When you see something like that, you can't help but think about your own child. This could happen to my child, too. It's something that you don't, you just don't forget about it. As the two investigators were working through the harrowing scene, more worrying news came in. 
we're in the middle of processing that scene. We'd been there probably two or three hours processing the scene for evidence. And then we were notified that Linda Jarman, who was a friend of Sherry Weathers, she did not show up for classes that day. She lived in an adjoining apartment, not to this building, but to the next building. So Dennis and I went to her apartment and uh, we discovered her on the bed in the bedroom and she'd been strangled. 33-year-old Linda Jarman, a deaf teacher at the same school where Sherry was a student, had also been murdered. He used a sock and just strangled her in her own bed. Of course, most people don't know what a VCR is these day and times, but back in those days, VCR was worth some money, so he stole her VCR in order to get money to travel further. Along with the grisly scene, investigators discovered Linda Jarman's car was missing. The team reported the findings to former Talladega County District Attorney Robert Rumsey. The evidence would show that after he strangled Sherry and Chad and Joey, that he went to Linda Jarman's apartment telling her that he had had a fight with Sherry and could he sleep on her couch. When she went back to bed and went to sleep, then he went in and he strangled her to get her car to leave. After speaking to those closest to Sherry and Linda, it didn't take investigators long to come up with a prime suspect. With a little more digging, they discovered he'd been using a different alias. At that point, we learned the name Daniel Spence from the people at the school. And we start running him in the computer to see if we find out uh, Daniel Spence, who is, where is he, everything we could find out. And it's determined that his name is actually Daniel Lee Siebert. Once we developed him as a suspect and, and, and got his true identity, we'd put a nationwide pickup out on Danny Siebert and Linda Jarman's car. He quickly became the prime suspect because Daniel Spence wasn't here and Linda Jarman's car was gone. Surratt and Jax made a beeline for Siebert's apartment building. When they arrived, though, he was nowhere to be found. And they were alerted to another potential victim. So we go knocking on the door, and there's no answer at the door. A neighbor comes out and says, why are you here? I said, we're looking to see Mr. Siebert. He said, well, he's not here. He said, but I got tea. My girlfriend's missing. Well, who's your girlfriend? It's Linda Odom. How long has she been missing? Oh, two days, I hadn't seen her. She hadn't been home. Well, you know if she's ever connected with this guy here, Mr. Sieber. Yeah, they're kind of friends. Well, you need to go to police department file a report. In just 24 hours, four people had been found dead and another was missing. The investigators needed to find Daniel Siebert fast. They didn't have to wait too long for a lead. Over 350 miles north of Talladega, authorities had found a key piece of evidence. We received information from Elizabethtown, Kentucky, that they had located Linda Jarman's car right off the interstate in Elizabethtown. That's when Dennis and I left here to go there to process the car for fingerprints and physical evidence. And so they take us to the scene, and we go up an embankment from where the car was, and we find a campsite. We uncover a campsite. And Eugene Riley, we find identification to the boys. We find information on Sherry Weathers and Linda Jarman all at that campsite. So we're fairly certain this time we're on the right trail. It was a huge breakthrough that confirmed Daniel Siebert was their man. We got Daniel Siebert's fingerprints out of the car. Plus, other evidence we knew that tied to him, 
the type of cigarettes he smoked and the type of chewing gum that he chewed. We recovered photographs of women and children, women's cosmetics. There were also some quite chilling items at this campsite. There were photos of the Weathers family, there were drawings of the Weathers family. And I think this emphasis on those victims is so significant in this case. This young mother and her two children seem to have quite a lot of importance for Sieber because I think that he didn't feel they deserved to be alive. These boys were happy. They were loved and cared for by their mother. I think he felt a real sense of envy and resentment towards them. It was something that he wanted to relive and I think those three murders of Sherry Weathers and her two children were the murders he was most proud of. Investigators were certain Siebert was responsible for at least four murders but the dangerous killer eluded them. Dennis and Eugene, uh, both of them are excellent processors. They go and they're in Kentucky for quite a while so they were up there several days and he's in the wind. We didn't know where he was, but we knew that somebody's going to die until he was caught. While investigating Linda's stolen vehicle, Jax and Surrett recovered an address book belonging to 31-year-old Siebert. This small discovery would prove to be an important find. I had one investigator. Her main job, I'd say, in, in this investigation was to stay in contact with non-associates of Siebert. She had built a rapport with the girlfriend of Sleepers out there, and she promised that if she heard from him, she would call. Tensions were high, and investigators knew that every day that passed was another day that Siebert could strike again. Each day when you went to work, the first thing you did was start checking tips and leads on the possibility of where Siebert was. There wasn't a day that went by that you didn't do something on the Siebert case. I don't know how many miles we put on cars going from here to there to check out leads or information on Siebert or some of his friends or this, that, and other. I mean, Lord, there's no telling. Days turned into weeks and then months. Daniel Siebert's location remained a mystery. The police were doing their best, but many states away, another woman would be Siebert's next victim. What if your partner developed 21 new identities, or you discovered that your friend who helped you through your darkest times was actually a conniving con artist? Or what if you began seeing demons everywhere inhabiting people, including your son? What would you do? From Wondery, This Is Actually Happening is a podcast that brings you extraordinary true stories of life-changing events told by the people who lived them. In their newest season, you'll hear even more intimate first-person accounts of how regular people have overcome remarkable circumstances. From the man who went to jail for 17 years for accidentally shooting the person who tried to save his life, to one of the close friends of infamous scam artist Amanda Riley. These haunting accounts sound like Hollywood movies, but I assure you, this is actually happening. Follow This Is Actually Happening on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to This Is Actually Happening ad-free on Wondery Plus. By March 1986, Daniel Siebert was a wanted man. He was the prime suspect in the murder of four people and the disappearance of another. After abandoning a stolen car, the 31-year-old killer had 
seemingly vanished. Unbeknownst to investigators, Siebert was more than 900 miles away from the Talladega, Alabama crime scene. He had gone to southern New Jersey and was about to claim another victim, 57-year-old tour guide Beatrice McDougall. Former Talladega County District Attorney Robert Rumsey and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley set the scene. Daniel Siebert was in Atlantic City, staying in a hotel on March 8th of 1986, walked by a room of Mrs. McDougal that was a tour guide. She was fixing up for a reception for a hospitality room. He would have deduced fairly quickly that she's a tour guide, so she's likely to have some cash on her. Siebert was determined to get his hands on Beatrice's money by any means necessary. And he goes in there and kills her. We don't know at that point that it's Siebert, but he's off and in the wind, and we ain't got a clue where he is after that. He just drops off the radar. Siebert viciously stabbed Beatrice twice in the stomach, then strangled her in an opportunistic attack. I think that there is just no regard for the the rights or the feelings of other people. It's all about him. He needs money at this point in time because he's on the run. Um, He also wants to kill any potential witness to this crime, this crime of theft. So her life was just not considered valuable by him. Siebert's whereabouts were still unknown. And bad news continued for investigators Dennis Surratt and Eugene Jacks in Alabama. On March 30th, 1986, Dennis Surratt says another victim of the 31-year-old artist was discovered. We're all actually at the DA's office working on another case, and we get a call that we've got a body. And just outside of Talladega, there's a little cemetery on the left-hand side of Alabama Highway 21. And there we find a skeletonized body. No question, it's been there for a long time. Decomposition has already come and gone. And we sift through everything. She's not buried or anything. She's been laid on top of the ground. We know it's female, and that's all we know. And we sift through the pine straw and everything, looking for all the bones, the teeth, and this, that, and other that we could find to identify. And ultimately, she was identified as Linda Odom, the girl that was missing from the next-door neighbor's secret. When they pieced together the timeline, investigators determined that Linda Odom, a 32-year-old cocktail waitress, had been Siebert's first victim on February 19, 1986, meaning Daniel Siebert had killed five people that day. Linda's body was taken to Siebert's apartment and he disposes of the body by lowering it in sheets out of the window and then taking it to a nearby cemetery to dispose of it. And interestingly, Siebert said that that when he was disposing of Linda's body, he started punching her. I mean, she was obviously dead at this point in time, but I think that was something that enhanced his feelings of control over this victim. And I think that 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 sense of rage as well that he expresses at this point in time, the way that he's seeing this community, this community who are so welcoming, who are so inclusive, who are loving towards one another, this is something that he feels he was entitled to when he was younger, something that he never had. And these people don't deserve it, according to him. So I think that's what's underlying all of this behavior. This is a young girl. She didn't deserve what happened to her but she just dumped in the cemetery. That kind of hurts your heart that somebody is so cruel to do something like that. 
What the detectives in Alabama didn't know was that as they were investigating this new addition to the case, Siebert had been arrested in New Jersey and was serving 61 days for assaulting a woman. When he was arrested for that crime, Siebert used the stolen social security card of murdered five-year-old Chad Weathers as identification. Because of this, no one realized that they had a cold-blooded killer in custody. So during the time that Siebert was on the run, he actually used the identities of Sherry Weathers' two boys um, to, to gain new identification. And at this point in time, it was relatively easy to do that, to use a child's identity to get a social security number. But I think that the significance of this is more than just a practicality. I think there is, is something much more meaningful going on here. By possessing the, these children's names, by presenting yourself as them, you are owning them, you are possessing them, they are yours. And it's that extension of control over your victims. After serving his time, Siebert was released, but it didn't take long for him to end up back in police custody. In June 1986, he was pulled over in Virginia. This young officer stops Siebert, and in the car he finds ropes and knives, ladies' belongings, photographs, just all types of things that just made him very suspicious of this man. They checked the car and it was stolen, so he was arrested for uh, car theft. Uh, being in, in possession of, of the stolen car. He was using the identity of Joey Weathers, using the social security card as identification. He made bond and he was gone. Siebert was incredibly cunning, incredibly manipulative. I think he was well aware of the fact that law enforcement wasn't particularly well joined up in terms of interstate communication and sharing of information at this time. And I think he, he truly did take advantage of that. In August, he was once again on the move. This time, he went to Maryland, where he assaulted another woman in Baltimore. Police weren't able to catch him before he fled. Siebert headed south toward Nashville, Tennessee, and investigators in Alabama were still searching for the artist-turned-killer. They were about to make a breakthrough. Detectives reached out to the people listed in Siebert's recovered address book and caught up with one of his ex-girlfriends in Nevada. Homicide detective Eugene Jack says she had news for them that would finally help crack the case. This lady calls from out there and says that she had just spoken with Danny Siebert on the phone, and he told what time it was where he was at. And she could hear thunder, and it was raining. So the investor came and then told the rest of us about the call and that it was raining at that particular time. It wasn't a lot to go on, but investigators tried to trace the source of Siebert's call. Said it was not easy to trace telephone calls, but they told us if we had any idea where he was, it would make it a lot easier. Otherwise, it could take three weeks to a month to trace it. I told the investigator, go call the National Weather Service, find out where it's raining in that time zone. It was raining in Tennessee. That was it in that time zone. We were able to use that information and trace the telephone call to Hurricane Mills in Tennessee uh, to a little convenience store restaurant there. Thanks to the National Weather Service, detectives were able to pinpoint Siebert's location. He was in the small community of Hurricane Mills, Tennessee, 70 miles west of Nashville. 
So I called the district attorney, told him we were going to Tennessee. He said, okay, I'm coming with you. There's no question we were keyed up because we spent six months and no telling how many trips, not me, but how many trips with the investigators and stuff had gone running down every little lead that they could come up with, which really had proved fruitless. And, but this is a live hit now. So we all loaded up in cars, headed to Tennessee. I called PBI, which is Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. This is what we got going on. We got him traced to this location and we're headed that way. After a long six and a half months of searching for Siebert, the detectives were greatly anticipating his arrest. The journey up there was, it's, it's almost like waiting for your birthday party. We were all extremely excited. Well, by the time we got there, it was late night. And we decided not to do anything but send one by, one investigator in there to see if they could see anything to the search person. Because you had this service station where the call was from, and then you had a restaurant up here, and then you had another filling station, a restaurant up here. So one investigator went in, kind of knew the owner, and said, yeah, he's been painting some signs for me, and he'll be in here in the morning to collect his check. Unable to do anything until morning, the investigators settled in for a sleepless night. Everybody's upbeat. Everybody's tired, but everybody's upbeat. And I don't think a single one of us took a nap that night out there on the road, because we were just on a roadway uh, waiting for morning. On the morning of September 5th, 1986, the team was ready to pounce as dawn broke over Hurricane Mills. It's hard to describe what it was like sitting there waiting for him to, him to come around the building, but I'd always wondered if I'd recognize him when I saw him. When he rounded the corner of that building, there was no doubt in my mind, that's him. As soon as he went in the door, Dennis and I were out the door. We went in behind him. Uh, he wasn't there. Scared us to death. We just looked at the clerk, where is he? And she pointed to the restroom. And we went in, and TBI and uh, the captain went in and arrested him in the men's room. And uh, his only question to us was, uh, how'd y'all find me? I mean, he's got about six weapons just aimed at him, and he's caught with his butt down, basically. Uh, we seized his backpack. We found where he'd been staying in a car, a wrecked out car behind him at the station. And he is immediately taken to the court in Tennessee. And we contacted our governor and asked her for her plane to fly him back. At last, they had him. Daniel Siebert would never be free again. I mean, man alive, you can't imagine the relief you feel. We've got him. He's not going to hurt anybody else. And there again, you're thinking of Sherry, and you're thinking of the babies, and Linda, and, and Linda Oden, you're thinking about them. Okay, we put everybody to rest now. And it's, it's the best feeling in the world. The killer was behind bars, but there was still a long ways to go to make sure Daniel Siebert paid for his crimes. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Over the years, I have gotten feedback from many listeners clamoring for new episodes of What Makes a Killer because they say it helps them fall asleep, which I 100% take as a compliment because I also struggle with falling asleep at night and staying asleep. And I think whatever gets you through is great. If I can help, fantastic. One of the reasons I have trouble falling asleep is because of racing thoughts, which is 
you know, basically anxiety. And maybe you have that problem too. It's your brain getting in your own way. And therapy can help you figure out what's going on so that you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. And that's where BetterHelp comes in. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not consider BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com what today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash what for what makes a killer. BetterHelp. In September 1986, serial killer Daniel Siebert was finally in custody in Talladega, Alabama. Detectives had spent months tracking him down for the murder of five people in their small community. Linda Odom, Linda Jarman, Sherry Weathers, and her two sons, Chad and Joey. Investigators had no shortage of evidence proving Siebert was the killer, but they were hoping an interview with the 32-year-old man would uncover even more secrets. Homicide detective Eugene Jacks still remembers the day of the interrogation. It was tense for me, and I'm sure it was for the captain, because we were wanting to get a confession. This was the end of a long, hard battle for us, and we wanted him to admit what he had done. Siebert told Detective Jacks about the five murders he committed on February 19, 1986, and confessed to the killing of Beatrice McDougall in Atlantic City on March 8th. He showed no remorse for any of the murders. He wasn't concerned at all. Uh, showed no emotion whatsoever. Never shed a tear. You could tell there was no concern in him about what he had done. And if we had released him right there, he'd have done it again in a few days because he had no remorse whatsoever for what he'd done. I've told people want to know how, how he felt about his victims. He didn't feel about his victims. He had no feelings for them one way or the other. He had no feelings for anyone. I don't know that he really felt anything about himself. To be honest with you, he just, he had no feelings. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel weighs in on Siebert's behavior. I think he was a psychopath. I think he demonstrated every normal, or if you can use the word normal when applied to a psychopath, every possible psychopathic tendency, an utter lack of remorse, an utter lack of conscience, an utter lack of empathy with other people. They were simply objects. And in an unexpected twist, Siebert confessed to another murder, predating the other six. This one had also taken place in Alabama while Siebert was living with Donald Hendron. It's early February 1986. Donald Hendron's asleep. Siebert gets out of bed and borrows Donald's car and picks up a girl called Cheryl Evans. She's working as a prostitute in Birmingham and Alabama. He kidnapped her, robbed her and killed her and uh, carried her body to Ohatchee and dumped it in a roadside garbage dump. And then just returned the car like nothing had happened. With this, Siebert's victim count was now seven. But Detective Jacks was certain there were still more. He had uncovered a telling piece of evidence while searching Siebert's home back in February. In his apartment, I'd found a road atlas 
I'd gone through the road atlas, and out on the west coast, he had had X's with zeros, X's and zeros, and he just had X's. I asked him about those, and he said every place that there was an X with a circle around it is where he had killed someone, and just the X's were robberies. I contacted each of these jurisdictions, and sure enough, each place that there was an X with a circle, they had recovered a body. This is basically Siebert's commemoration of the murders that he's committed. I think every time he looked at that map, he would have felt powerful. He would have felt superior. And we, we do often see this in cases of serial killers. Siebert confessed to killing three sex workers in Nevada and California in late 1985. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Siebert was intentional about his choice in victims. The fact that he's targeted sex workers is really significant for me because he's preying upon these women's vulnerabilities. He's well aware that society does not value these individuals as much as it values others. And therefore, he has access to them. He has the opportunity to harm them. He had no compassion for anyone, no feelings for anyone. These people didn't matter to him, not at all. He didn't hate them. He just didn't have any feelings for them. Whatsoever. Despite admitting to as many as 13 murders, detectives could only confidently link 10 victims to the 32-year-old killer. And for his impending trials, Siebert was only indicted for the five murders that had been thoroughly investigated in Alabama. Additionally, he was indicted for the murder of Beatrice McDougall, but the case never went to trial. Former Talladega County District Attorney Robert Rumsey remembers the trials. There was five homicides. Linda Jarman was a capital case because it was murdered during the commission of a robbery or a theft of getting a car. Sherry Weathers, Chad, and Joey was a capital case because it was murder of two or more people pursuant to a common plan scheme or design. Linda Odom was not a capital case. He pled guilty to Linda Odom after all of this life sentence. Three trials took place over the course of five months between March and August of 1987. In the end, Siebert was found guilty of all five murders. On April 17th, he was sentenced to death for the murder of Linda Jarman. On August 19th, he was sentenced to death for the second time for the murders of Sherry Weathers and her two children. I've probably tried 30 death penalty cases or more, but this one is just the magnitude of it and what makes another human being go do something like this. I mean, you got a woman that's deaf that he's intimate with, a four and five year old who he wakes up from their sleep to strangle, goes to another deaf woman and kills her just to get her car to get out of there. I mean, been sticking your mind, it, it'll be there on my deathbed. I think the sentences that he received were appropriate. I think he, he committed the, the most serious of crimes, so that deserves the most serious of sentence. But I think if, if we were to ask his victims' families, they're, they're not going to have their, their loved ones brought back. Um, I think they, they have achieved some sense of justice. But at the same time, I think they were asking a lot of questions as to how this man had, had slipped off the radar of the authorities. This man had committed a homicide in 1979, and he went on to commit more. So could more have been done to prevent that? He killed Sherry 
because she was deaf, and she would never amount to anything because she was deaf. He killed those two little boys because their mother was dead, and they would never amount to anything because they wouldn't have a mother. He killed Linda Jarman to get her car. He says he killed Linda Odom because she was a racist. I think he just killed people because he liked to kill people. I think one of the things that always moves me most about this story is that um, when he was asked about the killing of Sherry Ann and the boys, he said Sherry didn't have anything to say, Joey didn't have anything to say, Chad didn't have anything to say, and I don't have anything to say. If there's anything that could be more heartless, more utterly revolting, more depraved than that remark, I have yet to hear it. And this is a man who snuffed out the life of a deaf 24-year-old mother and a two children aged five and four. It is, it is utterly monstrous. In August 1987, Daniel Siebert began his death row sentence. For the investigators who had worked on the case for a grueling 18 months, it was a relief. I still think about those two little boys. Uh, and always will, I'm sure. I'm sure Dennis and other investigators do too, because they all had children too. I don't know what it is, but I know he's a psychotic killer. And had he not been taken in Tennessee, that, that's what's so outstanding about the police work. Had he not been taken in Tennessee, I don't know whether it would have been Arkansas, Oklahoma, Nevada, Utah, or California, but somebody else would have died. He wasn't through. Daniel Siebert remained on death row for 21 years, trying several times to appeal his sentence. He was unsuccessful. Before his sentence was able to be carried out, however, on April 22, 2008, Daniel Lee Siebert died at the age of 53 from pancreatic cancer. Daniel Siebert died, but not from lethal injection, from pancreatic cancer, natural causes. In the end, he escaped the death penalty. I mean, this was a personal type of crime. This is not something that you're standing 30 feet away and shoot somebody. This is someone you put your hands around their neck and choke the life out of them. That's bad. Think about that. It takes anywhere from two to four minutes to do that to someone. And you're sitting there and you got your hands around the neck and you're taking the life from them. You got to be enjoying that, otherwise you wouldn't do it that way. And if you're enjoying something like that, man, you are bad. In the end, Daniel Siebert was linked to at least 10 murders and was convicted of five. He never attempted to justify his reasons for killing people, and he never showed any remorse for the lives that he took. For me, what makes Siebert one of the world's most evil killers is the degree of manipulativeness that he was able to, to exercise. He was able to come across as an individual with feelings, as an individual who cared about others, but those feelings were not genuine at all. They were simply a performance. He was an absolute monster. He was a horrible person. He, he really was. Oh. And that's what comes to mind anytime anyone mentions his name. He's a, he's a monster. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Bogle, 
Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. Christmas Day, 2010. A couple was out walking their dog along a remote road in a small port city in Bristol, England. But their quaint holiday walk was cut short when they happened upon a startling discovery. The body of 25-year-old Joanna Yates. She had been missing for eight days. She is found to have 43 injuries focused on the head and neck. Her ultimate cause of death is manual strangulation. A nationwide hunt for the missing woman had come to a tragic end, and the prime murder suspect was Joanna's landlord and neighbor, Christopher Jeffries. When you're confronted with police telling you that you're under arrest on suspicion of murder, the shock is so great that really it's um, a question of feeling numb. The police had the wrong neighbor. Her true killer was a 32-year-old Dutch engineer who had killed her in an act of retaliation for rejecting his romantic advances. He takes one life in a terrible way and then proceeds to try and convince the world that he could not possibly have had anything to do with it. It is an act of gross depravity in my mind. His own family, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's family were absolutely convinced that he was innocent. So he was able to to maintain this facade of normality, this idea that he was this gentle giant, this innocent person. And I think when you can fool those closest to you, you're potentially a very dangerous person.